0: Steve, it's wonderful to
1: have you yeah, in the show. Like what what cloud-native and cloud-native security. Like really, the ones you the really want
0: system. were the last.
1: Um, static analysis tools were slow, they were accurate, they were comprehensive. But they were... I think organizations need to keep people in mind. That's probably maybe a cliched answer. If you look personal development them. is absolutely critical, not just for being an intelligent and successful cloud-native developer, getting developers absolutely. involved that when they do something, they can eliminate some low-hanging fruit and just creating a secure Kubernetes the deployment thing. that wraps right? A job in itself is to make sure you've got a secure version of Kubernetes. Cause really, and I'm sure you know this, all it takes is, he said this the, the the cloud provides you with a very securable environment, the rules before you deploy things into Kubernetes. And you can you can apply those rules as early as you want. Uh, and, and that would be great if you at an early stage, particularly in terms of cost. You might want just want to go pure serverless, because it's just an easier way of doing things. It how can be more secure. How do you life? know if a vulnerability in a transitive dependency is even reachable? How do you even know that it affects you? How do you even know it's there if it's seven levels deep? Question, but It, it was just interesting to see how deep it, the, this problem
0: is still probably present
1: out in the world in spite of it.
0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to uh, another episode of Scale to Zero. I'm Purushottam, co-founder and CTO of Cloud Annex. Uh, today's topics include cloud-native security, Kubernetes security, and DevSecOps. To discuss on these topics, uh, we have Steve Jagair with us. Uh, Steve is a developer advocate with Palo Alto Networks, specializing in cloud-native application security and automation. Prior to this, he was a cloud security architect specializing in containers and Kubernetes, and additionally spent like several years establishing DevSecOps best practices for enterprises who are moving to cloud. Steve, it's wonderful to have you in the show. For our viewers, like a few who may not know, uh, do you want to briefly share about your journey? Ah, uh, yeah, no problem. Thanks,
1: for, thanks for having me on the show. This is really great. Um, my journey, okay, uh, I, I, I started life writing code like a lot of people uh, do. And from there, I expanded into managing other people who ran code. And, and then I, I took a bit of a, a, a turn and I got into what I guess is called code craftsmanship or code quality for a while, uh, of which there are several very uh, prominent figures in that space. And then craftsmanship turned to security somehow and then suddenly I became all about security of code. I became very involved in what would be called maybe traditional application security. So anything OWASP related, the top 10, getting very into coding. And then from there, as we as the world seemed to transform and DevOps took over, cloud transformation became a thing, Kubernetes became a, a word we knew from something that made no sense at all. Uh, and, and now, Pivoting from k- Kubernetes to containers to cloud, and now infrastructure as code, and now supply chain, it's been
0: oh, it's been a pretty wild ride. Hi, uh, that's an interesting uh, career that you have, um, and yeah, I look forward to learn some of those as part of the podcast today. Uh, so let's let's start with like, how does it? What does a do? A day in your life look like today?
1: Uh, well, I, it's, a, it's a pretty good day in my life in that no two are the same. <laughs> I don't know if it's if it, what it's like for you. Uh, I spend a lot of time traveling around the different conferences um, for CloudSec and the AWS Reinforce coming up very soon, having just come back from RSA and B science in, in Las Vegas and preparing content. I work regularly with our product teams, uh, looking at mm-hmm. innovations, talking about the general landscape of security and what what priorities we need to focus on so i'm very heavily involved with product development still Um, i'm an active contributor to open source still keeping my keeping my knives sharp in that sense so day to day Mm -hmm. it can be anything and everything around software security um, but largely just trying to get the word out you know like yourself with the podcast and with what you do trying to raise awareness make developers more secure by default this is really this is really what it's all about
0: Oh, yeah, looks like you have a lot of things going on. Uh, You're sort of working with the product team. You're working on open source and many different areas as well. Uh, So, yeah, it's a pleasure to have you in the podcast. Um, So thank you for coming. So the way we do the uh, podcast is we have two sections. The first section focuses on security questions. Second section focuses on rating some of the security practices. So let's start with the security section right so you spoke about cloud native security uh, so when we say cloud native security what does it mean <laughs> it
1: sometimes it's able to define cloud native security by what it isn't it's, i think it's very interesting there was there was a while so the cncf or the cloud native computing foundation released a glossary it wasn't actually all that long ago of cloud native terms and some of the key ones weren't there like what cloud native and cloud native security, like really the ones you really want were the last, like I don't Mm -hmm. even know if they're there now, but when it first was released, there was no definition for it, right? Because it was so open to criticism. Um, If you take it as as what cloud native is, meaning born in the cloud, then Mm -hmm. it's an understanding of the vast connectivity of resources and code applications and orchestrators that happen within there. And the attack service and attack vectors that can be associated with that. And of course, how to proactively, ideally proactively, remediate risks before they become vulnerabilities. But of course, at the same time, mm-hmm. have enough observability in place to be reactive when necessary and translate all of that information back into being a more proactive approach. So it's a mm-hmm. it's a, a cloud-native security feedback loop is, is ideal. But that's not really where it ends, is it? Because mm-hmm. somebody who lift and shifts or uses a monolith to microservice approach to moving something into cloud, they're still going to the cloud native conferences. There's no word for that. It's your your cloud. Okay. So it, it still applies, but then there's another facet to that because moving an existing monolith into microservice often means you have issues with training, with employee understanding of what the new attack services look like. They might be familiar with what a monolith and server model looks like, or even some on-premise. So suddenly, mm-hmm. there's a whole transformation element involved there. That means you've you've got you've got a serious change management issue on your hands in terms of understanding security in that space. So cloud native, in its purest form, is complicated mm-hmm. to say the least, and even made even more complicated by by some form of cloud transformation. It's amazing. It's but we're we're all caught in the middle of this 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 tornado.
0: Yeah, it, it's funny that uh, you highlighted right that it, it's not very uh, clearly defined. I have uh, heard from some folks who say that yeah, cloud native security is Kubernetes security, and I'm like not <laughs> exactly, <laughs> so, right? So that there is that, that confusion. <laughs> <laughs> So I would like to understand like how is it different from let's say the traditional security? Let's say as an organization, I'm trying to move to the cloud Uh, cloud native security versus traditional security practices. How would you see them as different?
1: Well, I guess now you've, you've, in a way you've inadvertently uh, asked me what traditional security practices are. uh, And I, and I'll, I'm I'm probably at risk in trying to do that, but I'm going to (laughs) try. I think there was a, There was a time, and let's say go back to like 2014, 2015, where there was a lot of pressure. People would think their go-to tool would be maybe a static analysis tool. Mm -hmm. Open source usage wasn't as prominent as it is now where there are, choose your report. People think most applications are about 80% open source, maybe more Mm -hmm. if you look at the entire supply chain, for example, but back then, a lot of people did a lot of building themselves, a lot of creating of their own open source projects that weren't quite as mature as they are now. And most people really were not using Kubernetes. And if you were, well, good luck, because it was a mess. Um, and from a, just from an, how it worked in its early, early stages to it's having zero security controls whatsoever. But it, traditional practices were really, really focused on your code. Secure your code, mm-hmm. and then there were companies that came out looking at dependencies, but really only at the first layer, not so much dependencies on dependencies. And then we were then then we would pen test it, and it was slow, mm-hmm. and we would release. And if I, I companies I worked for, if we released quarterly, we were pretty happy. And then uh-huh. and and yeah, you, well, yeah, that was we were thrilled. Yeah. And then and then and then things started to speed up. Um, DevOps became a thing. Fast builds became a thing. And a lot of the traditional tools, I think security got a pretty bad reputation for being a blocker. Uh, I mean, legitimately so. Um, Static Mm -hmm. analysis tools were slow. They were accurate. They were comprehensive, but they were slow. And we got a bit of a bad reputation. Um, People started coming up with new methods of Isolating what was and wasn't that high value, some new interesting ASTs like IAST, which would plug into runtimes mm-hmm. spe- specifically for like Java, and those were great, but very very difficult to implement in in reality. So once we started moving into cl- things that were microservice based, I personally, mm-hmm. this is you know not reflecting any company I've ever worked for, found traditional, let's say, application security, static analysis tools to almost become irrelevant. They started to, Mm -hmm. the tech stacks fell into the hands of small DevOps teams, which means now we're using Go, we're using Rust, we're using languages that static analysis tools mostly didn't understand. And actually weren't too bad at just being secure by default anyway, because we learned from our predecessors. Now we started amping up the open source usage. And things like SCA or software composition analysis became, okay, maybe this is now top of mind. And then we started to use declarative languages for provisioning our cloud. So suddenly cloud security posture management became a thing. We better check. We just did that right in the cloud. Mm -hmm. And then we started to shift, we shifted that left. And then we started realizing, well, maybe static analysis for infrastructure's code is a good idea. Let's find it before it becomes part of the cloud. And all of this, all of these methods are a constantly transforming uh, learning process to realize whatever it is we do to try and secure the do- we're doing now, developers are mm-hmm. going to change it in six months and they're going to do something different and they're going to containerize it. They're going to push it into Kubernetes and they're going to expose all of our ports. And now we, now everything <laughs> we thought we could look at, we can't see anymore. And the attack surface is, we don't even understand the attack surface of the thing that's orchestrating the application we secured. Let alone necessarily mm-hmm. the application. So it's, it is, it, everything has changed. That's probably the summary, isn't it? Almost everything. Yeah, yeah. The things we, everything slipped on its head. The things we cared about most, we can care about least. And the things we hadn't even thought about are our most vulnerable elements these days. And now we're not, now we're talking about supply chain. The thing that builds the stuff that we're going to use that goes into the stuff we're going to use is under attack.
0: <laughs> right. So you touched on many areas, right? Like con- moving from monolith to microservices, uh, from supply chain security, uh, static analysis, a lot of them. I w- I want to dig deep into those. But before I go there, my one last question on the uh, cloud native security is: what mindset mindset shift is needed for organizations? Let's say somebody who was very familiar with the, the traditional security, and they need to move to cloud-native security. What do they need to keep in mind? I think
1: organizations need to keep people in mind. That's probably maybe a cliched answer. If you look at some of the, some of um, Microsoft's techniques um, that that outwardly say 20% of your time at least needs to be spent on personal development. Uh, That's not to be dismissed. Things are changing so fast that if you're not allowing developers and ops and everyone in this space, including security, to spend every Friday getting caught up on what has changed in the world as opposed to thinking you are doing the right thing now, you will not be doing the right thing in one month. And understanding that personal development is absolutely critical, not just for being an intelligent and successful cloud native developer, but absolutely Mm -hmm. if you feel that you're going to be able to secure the result that i think is i think it's more, it's always been important if you look at you know mm-hmm. any of the the methodologies uh, in terms of the devops handbook but i think it's become even more prevalent today because if you're not keeping up with in terms of security then you're falling behind mm-hmm.
0: yeah so i i totally agree with you on that right because the technology landscape is moving so fast your developers need to be aware of it and get familiar with it so personal development does make a lot of sense. Um, So so one of the things that you highlighted is, let's say we're moving to cloud native. So we are moving to cloud. We are uh, deploying our infrastructure using some declarative languages and stuff like that. One of the challenges with Kubernetes, which is very similar to how uh, cloud as well, is the misconfigurations, right? It's possible that you have uh, set up some policies which are not... Uh, following the best practices. Uh, So when it comes to Kubernetes, how should those be avoided?
1: Well, there's a lot of open source examples out there uh, that can, we can talk about open source. uh, I can talk forever about open source um, that can check Kubernetes manifests for just Mm -hmm. basic issues that are wrong. And you can really, you you can build them into IDEs like VS Code or any of the JetBrains varieties that can tell you what you're doing wrong as you're creating manifests, which is which is already a start. Um, thankfully, mm-hmm. most people aren't deploying vanilla Kubernetes anymore. They're using a managed service. And right. managed service, like, like any of the big cloud providers, are doing already a great job of providing with something that is um, more than nothing. The Kubernetes, in its some of its earlier forms, had some great big gaping holes in it that it is, if, if it weren't for the fact that attackers are often just as behind as we are, if you could make a time machine mm-hmm. and go back to 2018, there's a lot of Kubernetes you could take advantage of. But it's, it's important just to try and shift that left. I'm a, I'm a pro- big proponent of, of that phrase, even though it's also a bit of a cliche of getting developers involved that <laughs> when they do something, they can eliminate some low hanging fruit and just creating a secure Kubernetes deployment that wraps their application. I mean, in addition to that, there are measurements a variety of tools that will just check the kubernetes itself make sure you're using the up to date version make sure that the api service not public there are all sorts of different very basic configurations of your kubernetes deployment to make sure that although your cloud provider is doing their best make sure that everything is looking looking secure that, that this is i think a job in itself is to make sure you've got a secure version of <laughs> kubernetes cuz really and i'm sure you know this all it takes is one overly provisioned moment of some piece of a cloud container that can be accessed. And it, it it's very, very easy to pop out of that. And suddenly you're on the host, now, mm-hmm. you're moving, now you're looking at cloud metadata, and now you're moving sideways, and now you've got IAM credentials, and then kaboom. Um, it, it's all gone. Yeah. I mean, there's, there was a great example last <laughs> year of, of, well, I think it was last year where the Nginx ingress um, which was yeah. used everywhere not only was it a privileged container but it allowed you to run code that would then had complete root execution extract all secrets everything keys to the kingdom it was amazing and this is a this was considered infrastructure not even your own yeah like, so yes
0: things yeah it well. was last year when <laughs> engine, uh, Nginx yeah. happened yeah um, and you <laughs> highlighted one key thing right that um, like managed Kubernetes definitely comes with a lot of security baked in. Uh, but when it comes to cloud, there is that shared responsibility, right? Uh, so I'm assuming the same applies to Kubernetes as well. So as a practitioner, which area should I focus or which areas should I uh, ignore? that I know that the cloud provider uh, will take care of this from a Kubernetes security perspective. And these are the areas that I have to take care of when I'm deploying in uh, a Kubernetes workload.
1: It depends on your interpretation of the shared um, responsibility model, really. I I had a really good conversation with, um, he co-hosts another podcast, Mike Johnson. He's a CISO, and we were talking about what what can we rely on the cloud securing and in his opinion the answer was nothing he said the the <laughs> the, the cloud provides you with a very securable environment and as it's yeah. kubernetes now i would even say it's a very securable environment and it wasn't necessarily always it had a lot of defaults that were that could catch you off guard the you know s3 buckets became infamous for being wide open and unencrypted but now defaults to s3 buckets are not that and hey. Hey. there has been some corrective actions made over the last few years to make sure a lot of the low-hanging fruit that developers, or sorry, attackers, I should say, developers might get wrong, but attackers are looking for have largely been eliminated. Uh, so I think if you're looking for what you can ignore, I mean, if you look at the headlines from five years ago, most of that should be taken care of unless you've actively turned something off, right? That You've, you've gone mm-hmm. against the defaults to make that, sh- that sort of thing happen. But otherwise, I think that That level of advice is trust but verify is never assume that the cloud is going to secure something for you and never assume that Kubernetes, and whether it be a managed service or not, is going to do that for you. It's nice to think it might, but I think that's that's a trap that I wouldn't want to get myself into because although they they will progress slowly towards the bare minimum of defaults to be secure, they also want you Mm -hmm. to use the platform. And so... An unsecure platform is a lot easier and friendly to use than a secure platform, so there's always going to be a leaning <laughs> towards
0: ease of use over secure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the S3 uh, default uh, disabling public uh, uh, public buckets that came this year, right? I think March or sometime they uh, made it public, uh, like they made it default, uh, which should have been yeah. from day one, maybe, right? <laughs> and that goes back to what you just said, like the usability versus uh, making it secure. So maybe mm-hmm. they chose the usability first. And then now with uh, maybe like there are so many vulnerabilities or so many attacks that we have uh, heard, uh, they might have acted mm-hmm. on it and addressed it. Right. Uh, so <laughs> makes yeah. sense. Uh, one, one of the things that you highlighted is a lot of automation, right? Uh, When it comes to uh, creating your own environments or deploying your workloads, Uh, and I want to touch on sort of mix automation and misconfiguration a little bit, right? So when you are using automation, if you if you do not do the configuration correctly, it can impact. It can leave your environments vulnerable, right? Because it goes through, let's say, your uh, CI/CD uh, your DevOps DevSecOps pipeline, and it gets rolled out every time. So What role does automation play uh, in DevSecOps when you are particularly focusing on Kubernetes uh, configurations, let's say?
1: I think it's actually, it's it's essential. You can't have a secure platform without automating your security. And it allows you to create, well, some people say security as code, some people say policy as code. There are things out there like Open Policy Agent that can do things like this Mm -hmm. and make sure that you're actually codifying the rules before you deploy things into Kubernetes. And you can you can apply those rules as early as you want. Uh, and, and that would be great. If you could do all everything in the IDE and everyone did it, oh my goodness, that would be, that would mm-hmm. be a wonderful place, to, wouldn't it? But you can also deploy it in the pipeline so that you can break the pipeline if you see something's about to deploy that has high business risk. You can create rules around that. You can combine some of your checks of Kubernetes with SCA scans of the images themselves and say, look, we've got a manifest here. It's referencing an image that we didn't build what are the mm-hmm. vulnerabilities in that? Where is it going to be placed? What is the context mm-hmm. of my Kubernetes deployment? Is it internal? Is it going to be production? And you can create far more complicated security as code rules that allow you to make sure that you're actually maintaining a high-speed pipeline in terms of deployment, be it that of infrastructure or application. And at the same time, you're, you're, when you find something, you know it's real. It could be that you Mm -hmm. have an image reference that says, I'm going to use this Nginx here, and it's awful. It's like Nginx 117, something really old. But it's just going on to a a development server that's going to do something that has no access to any internet, let it go. You know, if you could build that context detection in through automation, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And worst case scenario, you deploy an admission controller into your Kubernetes. That is, I like to refer to it as the bouncer of the door, you know, who's looking to make sure you're wearing the right (laughs) shoes and Checking to make sure you look at the kind of you know character we want in this place. That's that's a good thing to have. And there, there's a very remedial style of assessment that an admission controller normally does, just looking for the really mm-hmm. bad stuff. But that's just another line of a defense in depth. You've got admission controllers. You've got your CI checks pushing that. You may even have pre-commit hooks that can use tools before you even check in to get to stop you from doing things. Right. And then, of course, maybe I bang on too much about it, but automation that Mm -hmm. checks things in the IDE and ideally
0: suggests fixes for you.
1: That would be even better, wouldn't it?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I love your uh, analogy of uh, admission controller, like the bouncer into a club, right? (laughs) Uh, So the automation thing that you highlighted, like policy as code, uh, is very similar to how, let's say, we create infrastructure as well, right? Using like Terraform or Mm -hmm. Pulumi nowadays to create your infrastructure Mm -hmm. so that you are in sort of complete control what infrastructure is getting deployed into your cloud. Um, yeah, makes sense. Uh, another uh, thing that we hear a lot about uh, when it comes to Kubernetes is that it's complex, right, uh, To because it gives you so many capabilities. There are so many ways to do things uh, like even to expose one, your service, there are different ways to, you can do that. Right. Let's say I'm uh, Like I'm running a startup, uh, we had a growing startup. Is Kubernetes the right solution for us?
1: Uh, early on, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, the reality is, is a, there was a very good article that came out I think last year about like when to use Kubernetes because Kubernetes is, is an attack surface. It is like everything else. It is complex. It's easy to get wrong. And at an early stage, particularly in terms of cost, you might just want to go pure serverless because it's just an easier way of doing things. It can be more secure by default, um, but mm-hmm. it's it's that there's there's some very careful architectural arguments necessarily about whether you're going to go serverless or whether you've got something large enough that and dynamic enough and configured well enough and scalable enough that Kubernetes is truly the solution for you. I like Kubernetes mm-hmm. a lot for the features that it gives you in terms of. Resiliency and scalability in terms of moving all the moving parts, but it's it's not the most straightforward uh, way to be successful if you're really small. I think it's great for medium and it's great for large. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is if I could just define it when's best for Kubernetes right now. Oh my goodness, that would
0: be wouldn't this be the best podcast ever? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, I I echo that sentiment, right? Like it always depends on which stage you are in and stuff like that. You you touched on cost and that's often seen as another challenge as well, right? And recently there was a blog post uh, from Amazon Prime video team. Uh, They said that they moved from microservices to monolith and they could save up to 90% of their cloud cost. What's your take on this now? (laughs)
1: <laughs> Did you, I'm assuming then you read the original, the original article by Prime where they showed the architecture that they'd created and they were, they're moving data around, they were caching on an S3 bucket mm-hmm. and it was like at a glance, I think in hindsight, they, they themselves probably looked at that architecture and went, what were we thinking? Like <laughs> we got Kubernetes fever or we got serverless fever or we got cloud native fever and we just went, oh, we've got to use this and step functions and, and it's going to push here and do this. And the whole time we're pushing vast amounts of data around while doing this. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I think I saw a reaction article also, I think it was in the new stack that had everyone thought, no, I don't know if people really looked at the architecture about it uh, before they said, how dare you go back to Monolith. You're, <laughs> and some people were fans. Some people weren't. I, I actually am a huge fan of the article because they did the right thing. When you are handling that level of data, yeah, it's it, it's 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 fun and creative to come up with the method that they did to do it. But I, I feel there is a lot of people looking at that design and went, "You should have spotted that a long time ago." <laughs> this this is just not a good design that you came up with. Very creative, but not good. So I don't I don't know that that's like that's going to become a trend. I think it got a lot of attention, but I think maybe it woke people up to the idea that it's not great for everything. Monolith still has its place in the world, and this is a great example of when that was correct.
0: Yeah, and that also sort of highlights that Kubernetes is not the solution for everything, right? Uh, it no. always depends on your use case, Your uh, as we spoke about uh, earlier, like, if you're a startup it doesn't even make sense to invest in kubernetes that early maybe monolith is the right solution mm. so it always depends on your um, scenario and situation uh before you pick up kubernetes uh makes sense uh precisely yeah. one thing that you highlighted is that uh the the industry right how it has moved from let's say monolith to microservices similarly uh adoption of open source right uh, open source software has like increased quite a bit as well uh, and that brought in like more challenges like supply chain security related challenges like we have seen uh, like attacks on SolarWinds, Twilio, there was on PyPy and in fact there was a recent study by Anchor which highlighted that there are like 85 to 97% of enterprises code bases use open source and 62% of those are vulnerable to supply chain attacks. So from a DevSecOps perspective, what's what's your take on this?
1: Uh, well, it's absolutely correct. I think when I, I mentioned earlier, this is actually a good question because it supports what I said in an earlier answer. Um, the pivot to comprehensive software composition analysis, I think is absolutely critical because it's something that can be done as early as viewing a lock file or, or looking at viewing anything let's go back and go way back to java and say pom XMLs or looking at package.jsons in an ide there's no reason why mm-hmm. th- there we couldn't have plugins that say i see what i see what you're using you want to you're going to want to bump that because the version you've referenced has become out of date it's got vulnerabilities tell the developer creating them creating these dependencies you're not going to be able to check this in until we see the bare minimum of this is correct and that's going to solve quite a few things uh, just out of the box. Mm-hmm. I think additionally, we've we've started to become a lot more aware of the depth of transitive dependencies. And uh, I'm sure you know what that is, but for anybody watching that doesn't know what that is, it's it's when you have a dependency on a dependency on a dependency on a dependency. And uh, my, my friend who likes to say it's turtles all the way down, because how do you solve <laughs> the bottom turtle, right? How How... How do you know if a vulnerability in a transitive dependency is even reachable? How do you even know that it affects you? How do you even know it's there if it's seven levels deep? It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it was quite fascinating. Um, some, some experimentation I did last year for some research with, which was when it was post log for log for J, log for shell research to see in an average Java application, where was log for shell? And it turned out it, it almost everybody was using it directly. And that was their fix. But most applications had four different versions of log for shell in their dependency tree at every level, ah. all the way down to the bottom. So inevitably, the first thing you fixed, you probably still had it, but it was in right. something that used something. And so mm-hmm. whether it was exploitable is of another question, but it was just interesting to see how deep it, the this problem is still probably present out in the world in spite of people having changed Mm -hmm. their first level line of defense. So I think it's absolutely critical that 60 60 percent of of 60% vulnerable. Yeah, I completely I completely believe it. It's just a case of working out how and where things are. And as long as we we and that to sound you know doom and gloom, changing the surface and making sure you're you're doing the bare minimum of just software composition analysis, creating software bill of materials, making sure you pass those software bill of materials through the you know downstream so that people are aware of what you've included. If we all do that better, then we're going to do an we're going we're going to move the needle in terms of that number. And additionally new mm-hmm. innovations in terms of code signing and and providence with frameworks like Salsa are also going to you know make a huge difference now. But at the moment, I think that what just to double on Salsa some of the levels that have just create, come out with the release of 1.0 are eminently achievable. And if we can all pay attention to things like that, then the entire supply chain working together is going to make hopefully make those numbers a lot better.
0: Yeah, uh, that's spot on. One of the things that you highlighted is like software composi- uh, composition analysis or the bombs, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, let's say I'm using an open source library. And generally open source libraries are like the maintainers. They are not doing it full time, right? So let's say I find a vulnerability in uh, one of the packages that I use and uh, the developer or the maintainers are not updating to let's say latest co-version uh, or something like that. How should organizations address that?
1: Yeah, well, there, <laughs> this, that's, a, that's another amazing problem. That we have, when you're dependent on open source, you have the uh, the notion uh, that can be highlighted by some some tooling out there of operational risk, which is mm-hmm. if you're dependent on a on a, on a particular package, can you can you do you have observability on that dependency in terms of its activity? How fast are they remediating issues? How many contributors are there? When was the last time a commit was created? You may really mm-hmm. really like it, and it might really do what you want. But if it's not something that is reacting quickly to reported problems then you've created an operational risk that is going to give you a security risk sometime in the future so these are the sort of issues that you're highlighting that we actually need to get ahead of because if you've already mm-hmm. found a vulnerability and you've reported it and you're not an active contributor back to the open source project upon which you are dependent mm-hmm. i guess i would say it probably be a bit harsh but you created a problem for yourself if you love an open source project Ask, get some of your developers to, to help and, and push things back upstream. Add features, become a part of the community so that when you find a problem,
0: you are you are part of the solution as well. Hmm. Okay. So I, I love your answer. Like There are two <laughs> uh, things that I could gather from it. right? One is do a proper evaluation before you adopt a new open source technology so that you don't create mm-hmm. uh, security risks for you in future. And the other thing which is mm-hmm. more important is if you like the uh, project, why don't you contribute back to the community, right? Like, if you see there is a gap, fix it and push uh, the uh, fix to the upstream so that others can also benefit from it. And that's that's the, in a way, the value of open source, right? So love that answer. It, it,
1: yeah, it's it's a prominent problem. I don't know if you remember was it, how long, like it's again within the past year. The author of was it colors and. Sabotaged his own project because no one was contributing back upstream. He was just doing all the work, and millions of people were using it. And he just got fed up and, and ruined his own project, for, and it really messed with the world. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um,
0: yeah. So, I mean, so that it again be, goes it back be to, open to source everyone. <laughs> yeah, right. That again goes back to uh, like it should not only be consumed, right? You should also give back to the community so that others can also get benefit. The way let's say as an organization, you are getting benefited out of it. Uh, So yeah, contribute to open source. Uh, That should be part of every organization's uh, uh, sort of KPIs in a way, right? If you're using open source, you should contribute back to the open source as well. I like that. (laughs) Uh, So speaking of open source, there are so many open source tools available, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Are there like top five that you think are worth using uh, that you would recommend for, let's say, startups?
1: Ah, uh, Yeah, sure. Um, I, now th- do you want my incredibly biased answer first, like being the one I work on? That would be, mm-hmm. that would be Checkoff. I'm actually blatantly wearing a Checkoff T-shirt now. Um, <laughs> it is it is a scanning tool. It's free. You can get it at Checkoff.io for infrastructure as code. It started off as a Terraform tool. Uh, because mm-hmm. born out of just obvious frustrations with with Terra, terraform <laughs> um very easily extended into things like cloud formation and serverless templates uh, and now it does kubernetes manifest but also including helm and customize because those are abstractions from mm-hmm. the traditional yaml so it does it does all of that level of checking um so that big fan of that we're we're, we're just working on now and and having just released the idea of graphing connectivity between resources, because as you know, a manifest has a lot of dependencies and so you can see connections yeah. between deployments, service uh, accounts, the access control of that service account, our secrets connected to all of this is now going to be part of an open source project, which is amazing. Nice, um, yeah, What it does. And it's, it's a, ne- it's a never ending, um, labor of love, uh, outside of that free stuff. Um, I think well, most people. I think Trivi for container scanning has become kind of the standard. Everyone uses it. It's fast; like mm-hmm. it's unbelievably quick. I think that's that's a no brainer in using uh, something like that. There's, mm-hmm. I could go on too long in terms of observability. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot out there that is completely free. And completely amazing. Actually, I almost want to ask you, throw one into the pile because you must have a, a favorite open source tool as well that you like, uh, or you yes, can plug if you.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. So uh, there is an open source uh, called Signals. They do open source mm-hmm. observability. Like since you were speaking about yeah. observability, that I could recall that, and uh, they are doing amazing things uh, uh, when it comes to observability. So yeah, I definitely ask our audience to check it out.
1: Yeah, that that sounds awesome. So now I'm going to I have a I have a Friday show that I do every uh, every second Friday on Mm -hmm. Twitch and in every single one I try a new open source tool. So um, I have a growing list of things that I want to try to see how they work. S bomb generation. There's a lot of free stuff around there, um, sift and things like that. These are these are becoming mm-hmm. standards in terms of making sure. Uh, have I hit five yet? I, I mean, the thing I can give you five hundred. That's the that's the problem. <laughs> yeah,
0: and I, I think I we we did like when you, four.
1: If you have one more, we're talking. It's like when you're talking about um, um, trying to mention say thank you because I've just won an Academy Award. Inevitably, you forget <laughs> someone that you that you meant that you meant to mention. Mm-hmm. Um, Ah, I'm gonna do a completely un-off, un off un unknown one. There was and it's one that, that we're working on as well, which is bit have a I'll be able to plug again, sorry. But it's called your it's Y-O-R,
0: mm-hmm. And
1: it it embeds into the CI CD platform and automatically takes get details both based on commit and on like the, the resource itself and adds tags because mm-hmm. you can add tags to anything in infrastructure's code, right? whether it be mm. labels or whether it be specifically tags and it automatically creates a set of very cohesive and trackable tags and oh, nice we've started using this yeah we're using this for cost observability in cloud platforms because mm-hmm. you can track the moment of the tag back to a specific get which means you know the owner and you know the team and all of this mm-hmm. information just based on Strategic tagging of resources, be it Kubernetes or cloud, you can suddenly glean all of this information that you just didn't, you just did not have before. So right now, mm-hmm. I'm working with the team on how to do this for Docker files, so that you see a Docker file built. Now you can tell every instance where that Docker file, the image from that specific Docker file, is now running. Should something happen, yeah. it's just this code to cloud traceability tool that mm-hmm. was. It was just very difficult to achieve before, and if this if it gains traction, we're thinking about a CNCF donation for it. If it works,
0: and we it's a, once we get all the bugs out of it. <laughs> be pretty, pretty, no, that's be that good. sounds amazing, right? That sounds amazing because tax is one of the uh, key components which is needed for the costing, like mapping it to the cost impact, right? And especially yeah, exactly. during the economic times that we are going through, everybody is trying to figure out. Where is where am I paying uh, when it comes to cloud, right? So, yeah. So what we'll do is we'll tag all of these projects when we publish the video so that our audience can also uh, get benefit out of it. Cool, thanks. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, so that's a great way to end the security questions uh, section. Thanks, Steve, for the uh, fun conversation. Here are a few important points which stood out for me. First one is, Kubernetes is is not a solution for all use cases. It always depends on your use case. It depends on the growth stage of the company, expertise in the team, and many more. Surprisingly, monoliths can be a better solution sometimes. The second one is automation is a key practice while adopting cloud native security. Shift left by integrating security practices like policy as a code, software comp- composition, analysis, integration in the pipeline, code signing, and s generation, etc. SCA and sboms are important when adopting open source tools. Trust, but verify. Use solutions like uh, image signing, SALSA framework, integration with CICD pipelines to have a better and clear understanding of the dependencies and their vulnerabilities. Uh, Prior to adopting open-source tools, do a deeper analysis in terms of support from the contributors, community engagement, release frequency, frequency and engagement. Uh, This helps in avoiding any security and operational risks in future. Also, it's highly recommended to contribute back upstream if uh, you know the fix or if you can fix it so that others can benefit out of it. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, now let's go to the secu- rating security practices section. The way it works is, I'll I'll sort of share a security practice, and I'll I'll look for a rating from your side, like one being the worst and five being the best. And if you want to add any context to why you think it's a one or a five, uh, that would be lovely as well. Uh, okay. So let me go through the first one security processes are a roadblock to business growth. So grant users unrestricted access to the systems and applications so that business growth is not affected at all. <laughs>
1: okay. Um, one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it sounds uh, it, It's like the worst thing ever. Yes, security processes have a reputation for blocking uh, development, maybe. And that's maybe a bad thing. Maybe that's a I would say now is a misconception. It's not like we don't have a history of doing it, as I said earlier, but granting unlimited access to everything. um, Yeah, that's a pretty bad idea. Uh, It it goes completely against the, the notion of least privilege or zero trust or call it whatever you want. Um, Mm -hmm. That is the total opposite of what actually people should do. However, saying that I have met several people in startups where that is exactly what's happening.
0: (laughs) Okay. That, that was on the spot. Like I, I, I was expecting that, honestly, the rating. Uh, yeah. Let's go to the next one, which is same incident never recurs. So once an incident is re- resolved, uh, let's move on to the next incident. There is no need for like a retro.
1: Oh, boy. Uh, all right. Statistically, I don't think I would ever say what you, what you just said, but I don't think it deserves a one. I think if you've suffered an incident, mm-hmm. um, let's use like LastPass as an example. People think mm-hmm. because LastPass has reported breaches several times that you should—I've been told—you must leave LastPass and go to another password manager. And if you know, I was using this, and my impression is, I actually really trust LastPass because they've been—they've experienced their weaknesses firsthand. Nothing got out, and I went. This mm-hmm. is good. I trust this. Well um, I'm not saying it'll never happen again because look at look at it. last passes last pass were breached. they thought they fixed it. they got mm-hmm. breached again. It happens right away. So it's certainly <laughs> not true that instances never happen twice. They can easily happen twice um, because attackers who have an attack vector pivot the attack vector on the defense. You look at um, the patch for log 4 j. first one, create another problem. next one, next one there's three. It wasn't until 217.1, I think, where they'd actually fixed it. So to think something can't happen twice, I would assume completely the opposite. If it happened once, it may happen again right away, um, even if you've applied the patch, because you don't know that the patch 100% works. So I would just say, trust but verify at that point. You did mm-hmm. what you could. Amplify and tailor observability around that specific instance, so that when it does happen again, you know instantly because you you've tailored your runtime of, of security to it
0: makes sense uh and thank you for the examples as well um the last question is conduct pe- uh, periodic security audits to identify vulnerabilities threats and weaknesses in your system and applications
1: yeah i mean that's great that's actually great advice i mean if uh, Depending on what you're, how you define periodic. I mean, there's, if we get into the idea of that practice, you want to make sure that when you say periodic, that you are tailoring that definition to the business risk. Mm -hmm. Um, there, there are, I've seen versions of security that do snapshot analysis of your cloud and they do it, you know, periodically in a way that I think isn't enough. I think having continuous monitoring of runtime is a far better way of doing things. Um, so the further you get away from production the more periodic you can be I think but I think you're ideal if you can do it under minimal load and under minimal um, friction as close mm-hmm. as you can get to continuous is really always the best method of security because it 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 doesn't take it doesn't take very long uh, if your periodic is too periodic to realize that mm-hmm. really you're just closing the closing the door after the horses have bolted yeah. So well, I think it sounds like a good practice, a solid definition, I give it a 4 out of 5 as long as mm-hmm. we're, we are um, adjusting periodic uh, related to business risk.
0: Close to uh, continuous. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, yeah. So the, that's a great way to end the podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Steve, cool. for joining uh, and it was a fun conversation and there was a lot to learn uh, yeah. for, uh, for me, especially. I hope our audience will also learn something as part of the uh, episode.
1: Yeah, thanks, Chris. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, thank you so much.